0: And welcome back To another edition of the Sports Cafe I'm your host this week Mike Weil Live from snowy Chicago Along with our usual panel Mike Mandel in philadelphia or i should say around philadelphia adam rosen and ian gus in new york city and jersey city respectively ian i got that right enough
1: the state of new jersey all right uh, not jersey city but the
0: state (laughs) of the right idea all right so you're you're in the state of new jersey which is correct so adam i'll start with you first before we start the show i have to anoint the champion of the nfl picks for this year adam rosen he had an outstanding start to the season faltered a little bit but then hung on he was one and one last week he rode tom brady as (laughs) the smart people tend to do to victory so adam congratulations do you have any you'd like to say before we start the podcast yeah, acceptance
2: speech. i i i want our our pickham league but i i think i'm at 500 for the season now so i'm actually i need this super bowl victory to to
0: finish over 500 but um i'll take it <laughs> ever the modest person he's even modest in victory shooting for higher goals yes you were 40 That's and right. 40 and
2: and by the way i did want to give you some props for the intro song uh, for those wondering i'm sure they are uh, that is the Hava song by Nissim Black, and I know we don't really do outros, but I feel like you got to give the people what they want, and play that as our outro song uh, when we wrap up the podcast.
0: Your your request will be granted.
2: So yes. yeah,
0: Adam, thank you for the find. And speaking of, I guess hype, the Bucks <laughs> beat the Packers thirty-one to twenty-six this week. In a much hyped matchup, just like Adam hyped the Hava song just now, and Adam is the champion. I'll start with you. Did this game live up to the hype? Was it what you were expecting in a rodgers Brady duel?
2: Yeah, I mean, it look it was it was entertaining from start to finish. I think I had picked the Packers to win, although the, the Bucks were my preseason Super Bowl team, so I guess it depends on on which one you want to give more weight to, but uh, the game certainly lived up to the hype, but I think we have, you know, all the discussion around this game goes back to that decision by LaFleur there in the fourth quarter with the Packers down by eight, uh, fourth and goal from the, I think it was the the 10-yard line, opting to kick the field goal uh, to make it a five-point game as opposed to taking a shot at it on fourth and goal. Um, you know for the touchdown with a chance to tie with a two point conversion I think we, we probably have to start there and just a in my opinion an inexcusable decision uh, i don't I would be surprised if the data says that somehow that's the most efficient thing to do there but I'm just trying to wrap my head around what scenario was going through his head where he thought that that was the right decision to do because you you kick the field goal okay best case scenario is. Tampa Bay goes three and out and they punt. So then you're on your own, whatever it is, 20, 30 yard line with less than a minute left, maybe. And you have to go all the way down for five points. So a field goal doesn't even make it, um, you know, a a three point game. You're still, you still need a touchdown to win. So I don't know if you guys felt differently. I know a a lot of people on, on Twitter and social media uh, were, were criticizing the decision, but I thought, um, I thought it was a pretty, you know, cowardly move to, not try and uh, tie the game there instead of you know turning the ball over to Tom Brady and hoping that uh, your defense is going to get a stop there
0: yeah I for one was shocked Ian we'll we'll go to that discussion now because Adam brought it up yeah what was your reaction to the decision to kick that field goal when you're at the eight yard line fourth and goal needing a touchdown there
1: yeah, it didn't make didn't make sense to me. There wasn't enough time left um, to do something like that. In a sense, it was more risky to kick the field goal than to go for it. Um, I, I don't get it. I, I'm curious, and I don't know if he was asked Lafleur Lefe- about being down eight instead of seven, if that played into it at all. Where it was that two point conversion that was I don't know holding him back from going for it. But um, yeah, there just wasn't enough time left on the clock. They they you know were going up against Brady and. Rodgers, you know, he it was the play before, right? Where he might have been able to run run it yeah. in and decided to yeah. to throw it to double coverage. So and I don't know if had that played it. Had,
2: but... had he known that they were going to kick the field goal, maybe he makes a different decision there on third down, knowing he that, probably assumed you know, I got had, a chance. Yeah
1: another no. down and you know and now who knows this might be his last game with the packers um all ending in this this crazy decision but sure. um I, yeah i mean i think just more broadly we can continue discussing here i think the first half was excellent it was super entertaining great back and forth the quarterbacks were playing well i felt the second half was a little more sloppy um you know brady Got lucky a few times, I would say, and he also got unlucky other times where he was throwing bullets and the receivers weren't catching it. One of those was an interception, but then there were a few where he was just heaving it up, um, and and you know <laughs> and there were some interceptions, some catches. So it was it was entertaining. I don't know if it was an all-time classic game, but it was definitely obviously the better of the two games on Sunday.
0: And Mike Mandel, it, I'll, I'll read you this quote from Matt LaFleur, and I want your opinion on it. He said after the game, it was just the circumstances of having three shots and coming away with no yards and knowing that you not only need the touchdown, but you need the two-point conversion. So to Ian's point, he said that. The way I was looking at it was we essentially had four timeouts with a two-minute warning. So the the problem is that Tom Brady's the other side. He's the quarterback for the other side. So, Mike, with that explanation given – are you still going to roast him for the decision or can you see where he's
3: coming from? I'm going to roast him because I, I did not hear him say that. Um, but to me that, that makes things worse because my hypothesis was that the, the reason that he kicked the field goal is that he wanted the chance to be able to go for the win on the potential closing drive, being down only five points and allowing a touchdown to win the game without going into overtime. That's where I think his head was at. Now I, like the rest of you, and like the rest of everyone else who I've heard talk about, this, still would have said that, that it was the absolute wrong decision. That they absolutely should have gone for it on fourth down, um, because even if they missed, then the Patriots would have the ball towards the, their own goal line. Or I'm sorry, that the Bucs, Tom Brady's Patriots, the Bucs would have had the goal uh, towards their own goal line, and I think it would have given the Packers' defense um, an easier job to defend. and and then get the ball back again for a game-winning drive. But if that's really what LaFleur is is thinking, that he did not have the confidence in his offense to get six yards on fourth down, given that he has one of the the best QBs in the game and one of the best overall offenses in the game, um, I think that shows a lot about his potential inability to coach. Um, And to me, that was not the only questionable call of the game. I think that the game... Um, resulted the way that it did because uh, he was simply outcoached. First off, you look at the Hail Mary at the end of the first half. uh, Incredible play by Brady, but it should not have been allowed. Um, Why doesn't he have the safeties back in the end zone? He knows they're going to throw a Hail Mary, so why doesn't he do that? And then secondly, if you look at the breakdown of the plays, um, Matt LaFleur called 75% of the plays as pass plays barely used his running game at all. Bruce Arians called 60%. So that was a much more even split, and usually um, teams that have more versatility in the pass versus the run are, are better positioned to fool the defense. Um, so I thought it was a great game to watch because it was exciting, um, especially given that, yes, the, the Bucks dominated the first half, but the Packers um, clearly had a real chance in the second half to come back. Um, but I think the result... It wasn't that that Brady was better. I think Rodgers was actually better that game overall, but the Packers were simply outcoached, and they failed to capitalize on Brady's mistakes, whereas um, the Packers' mistakes the Bucks fully capitalized.
2: I, and I, I want to make another point about that play there, um, you know, near the goal line. So on fourth down, right? What, what was it? It was fourth and goal at the ten. Is that right? I thought. it was I at believe the it six. was fourth and goal at the eight. Okay. So you it was 10, to go. Yeah. So on that fourth down, there are two things that need to happen for Green Bay to win this game, right? They need to score a touchdown, and they need to uh, they need to get the ball back, presumably, you know, a stop because they didn't they didn't kick an onside kick, so they they needed a three and out. So I don't understand how that makes sense. So worst case scenario there. You go for it on fourth down. You miss, right? The Patriots that are not the Patriots. Uh, the the Bucks have the ball on their own eight-yard line, with just over two minutes left. You still have the two-minute warning, and the Packers can try and get their stop there and try and force a punt. But kicking the field goal, the only thing that does is improves the field position for there. You still need to get a stop, and I, you know, if Tampa gets a first down and you pull them to a field goal and somehow there's still time left. I mean, it, it's an eight, you're back to an eight point game with, I, I mean, seconds left in the game. So I just, I don't understand. You you cannot convince me that there's a scenario where that made sense. And I think what happened is I think Lafleur got lost in the moment. I think he, he panicked and he probably didn't realize he, he you know, the game moves so quickly, I don't think he had a chance to fully think through what he was doing there. So his, his, his initial instinct was, let's take the points. As Mike said before, yeah, if we get the ball back, we have a chance to win it as opposed to going into overtime. But I think that he really played. He played not to lose instead of playing to win. And it's unfortunate. Uh, I don't I mean, look, it was still a long shot, um, even if they score there. I like Tom Brady's chances to lead them down the field and kick a game-winning field goal, but you just hate to see a guy like Aaron Rodgers where his coach is not putting him in the best position to succeed as possible because ultimately no one's going to care about LaFleur's legacy. They're going to talk about Aaron Rodgers and the fact that he's only been to one Super Bowl.
0: So I think that the criticism of LaFleur, as you guys pointed out, I'm not going to beat a dead horse, it's completely fair. I disagree with the decision. I think it was one of the worst coaching decisions I've ever seen Given the circumstances, I mean, you have Tom Brady on the other side of the ball. You have to score a touchdown anyway. you you got to go for it there. But in Matt LaFleur's defense, he did an outstanding job this year with Aaron Rodgers. The Packers' offense last year was not good. People were saying that Rodgers' career was going to be over. They drafted Jordan Love, which was widely criticized. But I think that LaFleur, it was his first year as the Packers coach. He did an outstanding job making the Packers' playbook fit Aaron Rodgers' skill set. And you really saw the difference between McCarthy and Lafleur throughout the regular season and the first game of the playoffs where the Packers' offense was just unstoppable. They were a machine. And I think that that gets lost in this discussion over one bad decision because the people that are saying fire Matt Lafleur after this, I understand where they're coming from. But I disagree with it because it was Adam, like you said, he's a rookie head coach. He probably was lost in the moment. He was saying, all right, we'll get the points. We had three timeouts, then the two-minute warning. I can't say that you should fire him for that one decision. I think you have to look at the whole body of work, and I don't think he's going anywhere. I think he's a great young coach. I personally, having watched Matt Nagy try to put together a decent offense for three, four years at this point, I would rather much much rather have Matt LaFleur um, just seeing what he's done. And and Tom Brady was interesting. I, I heard on the radio this week that who knows if it's true, but you take it for what it's worth. Apparently someone close to him who knows Tom who's close to Tom Brady said Brady said that had Aaron Rodgers been in New England with Belichick would have had a much even a much greater career than Tom Brady because in Tom Brady's opinion he mentally gets the game. He sees the game as well as Tom Brady and physically he has better tools. So it's food for thought. And you saw what happened with Mike McCarthy as a head coach in Dallas this year. I mean, it was, it was a disaster. So LaFleur, I think as a Bears fan, I'd love to see him fired because I think it would make the Packers worse. Do you guys disagree? Do you think I was, he I was should gonna, be fired? No, so,
1: I, to me, I was going to make a similar point. Um, kind of, I guess, disagree with Adam a bit, you know, in terms of like the legacy of Rodgers. Like, it, yes, it was a terrible decision, but it was one play in, in a game of many plays. He didn't put him in the best place to win by kicking the field goal there. But that said, it was, you know, a back and forth game. It's not like, I, I, you know, I think the Bucks basically deserved to win. It would have been somewhat of a long shot for the Packers to pull it off. Um, it was kind of a brain fart moment in a very big game, which is a really bad look. Maybe they need to change up, you know, some of the coordinators. I don't know if he's the one calling plays or, or things of that nature. But to me, to fire him over that decision, it's a little bit, a little bit much. Um, especially, you know, they had the k- continuity of uh, Mike McCarthy for many years previously to now fire a guy after one year who did overall do a good job. Wouldn't make much sense. But you know, in, in kind of today's uh, immediate and and Twitter world of just getting you know roasted when you make one bad decision.
2: Uh, this it was it two, uh, me. for a second year in the league.
0: Oh, did right. I say you're right? Yeah. He yeah, was second, second year. So, not a rookie. That was all right, but I don't. I don't think so. that
1: changes my, my view on it. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I don't
2: think he should be fired. I like people are 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 way too quick to uh, discard of of head coaches. In my opinion, you either believe in a guy and his philosophy or not. And I think to. To fire a guy after back to back thirteen and three seasons would be, be kind of crazy. At least you know, unless Roger, if, if Rogers wants him out, if Rogers doesn't trust him, then well, I think Rogers you have a hard time keeping him on. Choose
1: to leave himself,
3: right? that's topic. So,
0: yeah,
3: I, here's what I I'll heard, say real quick on the on the yeah, coaching Mike, thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't disagree that he shouldn't be fired, right? I I, I don't think that after a single bad game that you lose your job given his success through the rest of the season. But to me, that that's what made it all the more surprising is he does such a great job throughout the rest of the season, has um, a good game against the Rams, but like he did a terrible coaching job pretty much that entire game. He was outcoached every step of the way by Bruce Arians. It wasn't just that call. It's, as I said, it was the Hail Mary pass at the end of the first half. It was his inability to balance the pass game versus the run game, like... I do think that those questions are going to need to be answered at his next meeting um, with, with general management. Um, he, he has to look at those mistakes and get better from there, in my opinion. And I think it's an opportunity for him, right? I, I think he's, what is it, both the last two seasons, he um, he ended up losing the uh, NFC Championship game, so let's see if he can make it over the hump this time. And then we, we can have this discussion again after, after next season. But absolutely, give him another season to... Um, learn from his weaknesses and um and continue to build off of his strengths and i wanted to segue
0: into this topic for a second that aaron Rodgers, after the game said that he's not sure what his future in green bay is now today this afternoon a representative from the packers front office said that he's not going anywhere and if i remember the quote correctly he said we're not idiots so he's right they would be really stupid to get rid of him. But do you guys, Adam, I'll start with you. Is is there any possibility that you see Rogers wanting out and being so frustrated with what happened that he's like, All right, guys, I've been here my whole career. I've only won one Super Bowl and I want to go somewhere else where I can win. Uh, no, I, I, I can't see it happening. I mean, where's it gonna go? They they were
2: thirteen and three. They had a they had a first round bye. I mean I think to Teams, uh, move cities, uh, learn a new system. I think at this point in his career, he's better off, you know, having Green Bay make the adjustments. I think using their first round pick on a position other than quarterback uh, will probably happen this year, unlike last year. I'm sure I know that Rodgers was, was pissed off when that happened. But um, yeah, I, I think he'll finish out his career in Green Bay. I'd be very surprised if he left.
3: He also already Green started Green. to backpedal, too. I don't know if you heard, but this evening he's already saying that he thinks he'll be back with him.
1: Okay. Yeah, I, I I would pretty much agree, although I don't know if I'd be shocked if he leaves. I think it was a bit more of a you know, straight after the post game, that fourth down decision, bit in the moment he was kind of more open to leaving. But I, I think, you know, that pick last year or in the previous draft, like that is almost a bigger deal than this fourth down decision. I think he's probably been playing with a chip on his shoulder and, you know, it, it worked. I mean, he's gonna he's probably be the MVP. Um, so, I think when he takes a step back and, and kind of weighs the good and bad, it, you know, at Adam's point, it's a 13 3 team. They're at the top of their conference. They're, you know, we're basically a play away from making the Super Bowl. So, I don't think it would be smart for him to leave, but, you know, we, we've seen athletes do crazier things. So, it, it wouldn't shock me.
0: So, with that, that'll be a wrap for our NFC championship game analysis and is you guys said and Gronk said also it's it's not the AFC championship even though it's confusing he's not on the Patriots he's on the bucks this year and the AFC champion that they're gonna face in the Super Bowl is the Kansas City Chiefs and Adam hey this hey, was like sorry for- can
2: I can I can I give one quick stat yeah. on on uh, on Brady before we switch over yeah you, you I can. read just a jaw-dropping stat so Tom Brady now has the same number of NFC titles as Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers and he now has more playoff wins versus NFC teams than Drew Brees and Russell Wilson. That's I mean that's how unbelievable is that? that
0: wait, how is it more than Russell Wilson?
2: Well he he's got six Super Bowls, so that's six victories over NFC teams and then oh, he's got three yeah. playoff wins this year against that's, the NFC teams. That's true. Crazy.
3: Yep.
0: So it's nine yep. Wow. So that just shows you, that puts it in perspective, how amazing his career has been. and then Longevity, but also dominance. (laughs) Since you also jumped in, I read that he had more playoff wins after age 35 than any other quarterback in NFL history. So he could have started his career as a 35-year-old and won more playoff games than any other quarterback ever. So that just shows you also. So anyway, moving on to the Bills and the Chiefs. Um, The Chiefs beat the Bills 38-24, and Adam, this was the pick that won you the championship. So I'll start with your analysis here. You were the one that saw Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs having no trouble. I think that it lived up to your expectations. Yeah, was I the only one that picked Kansas City last week to cover? I believe so. You were. Um, I'm looking down now. Yeah, Mandel, Ian, and I all had the Bills plus three.
2: Yeah, so and, that, and that was like the game that I, I felt very confident about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, look, the, the, the Chiefs have been the best team from start to finish. Um, when Patrick Mahomes plays, they very rarely lose. Um, they've, they've had some close games this year, but they are without question the best team in the NFL. Uh, they were my preseason pick. Uh, you know, a lot of people picked them to, to win from the start of the season. But I think what I felt after... They closed the deal last year and won the Super Bowl. Was this Kansas City roster has enough talent where you could start to think of them as a dynasty? Uh, I don't. Other than the Patriots, we haven't really had a, a dynasty-like team out there. But this combination of talent and the youth of Patrick Mahomes gives you the sense that this Kansas City team can rattle off, you know, three out of four, four out of six championships. They're that good. Um, so. Look, Buffalo was a great story from start to finish. Uh, It would have been very exciting to see them in the Super Bowl, I think. But at the end of the day, this Chiefs team was just way too talented. And, um,
0: you know, they showed it. And, Mike, what was your takeaway from watching this game?
3: Yeah, I, you know, for one, the Chiefs offense was stellar, which was expected. Um, Just all, all... pieces of that offense from the QB to the receivers, to the running, to, to the protection. Um, they played as the chiefs normally are expected to, but I, I think from the bill's side, um, I, I'd expected better when I called this game. I think that both Josh Allen and their defense uh, played pretty poorly, particularly the defense um, defense had no sacks, um, no turnovers because that one fumble was special teams. A- and, really couldn't keep their their team into the game. And then then you have Josh Allen, who I I don't know why he continued to hang on to the ball for such a long time all throughout the game. He never made that adjustment. Um, He took those four huge sacks. I think he lost over 50 yards in those sacks. And I want to say he barely completed um, like 52, 53% of his passes. So that's what was surprising to me. the, the Chiefs' offense, I expected, but I mean the the Chiefs' defense has always been solid, but not entirely stellar. They've been known to still let up some uh, points to some big offenses, and it it just seemed like the um it seemed like both Josh Allen and, and their defense was caught flat-footed this game. Uh, maybe it was the fact that um, it was the first time on the big stage, or at least the biggest stage that they'd been in in their careers, and they weren't ready for it. But I'd love to see Buffalo bounce back next season, as I think they will.
0: Yeah, and Mike, you you had a good point about Buffalo not playing their best. Ian, do you think this was a game where the Chiefs just played really well, the Bucks didn't play, they played poorly for time, or? Yeah, I think it, it was
1: kind of the the best kind of game that the Chiefs could play, and and probably one of the worst at the Bills, which ended up making this, in a sense, a blowout. The final score was maybe even closer than it should have been, and this is after the Bills were up nine nothing after the first. So they they started the game, you know off to a great start and the Chiefs just took over, especially in the second and third quarter, scoring thirty-one points. And uh, you know, Mahomes, I thought he would miss a beat. I know his status was he was always trending towards playing, but, you know, concussion protocol, you've heard some after effects, even when a player gets cleared, there was no sign of, of any issue, which um, you know, bodes well, I think, for an exciting Super Bowl. But I, I was surprised at how he was back to full strength and um, you know, looking as unstoppable as ever. Um, you know going 29 for 38 that's just a really impressive numbers three touchdowns uh, no interceptions so their defense played better than expected and their offense did as well I didn't expect them to score 38 points so I think the takeaway for me is is the Bills definitely maybe overachieved this year and um, you know they were uh, a step below uh, the Chiefs and um this one this one to me i would say and i'm sure the mics agree did surprise me i i did not see the chiefs winning in blowout fashion um but maybe when you take a step back you know we should have saw this coming i mean they have the most talent and that often is what makes the difference in in the playoffs
0: well, i want yeah, to take a step I... back from saying the bills overachieved this year i i think they were as good as advertised to me mahomes the reason why I went with the Bills this game was because I wasn't sure about Patrick Mahomes' health. You saw that hit he took last week. They weren't sure if it was a neck thing, if it was a concussion. He was in the concussion protocol till Friday, and then finally he cleared it. He also had a turf toe injury, which can hamper a quarterback that likes to move a little bit. So I had questions about Mahomes, and the Bills look great most of this year. And at the beginning they were winning the game nine to nothing so they came out strong but mahomes has won a super bowl he's young but he's very experienced and you i think saw josh allen playing in his first afc championship game not his fault but the offense didn't really get much going the defense was outclassed by the chief's offense and travis kelsey is just incredible he to me was the hero of this game for the Chiefs because whenever they needed a big play, they went to Travis Kelsey, and he just knows where to be. He knows where to be to make that tough catch, and he's incredible to watch. I mean, he just dominated. After the game was nine to nothing, it was the Patrick Mahomes, the Travis Kelsey show. So, and I know Nicole Hardman, he had a great return, and and he also had a great catch that um and scored a touchdown, but I think Kelsey, if I were to rank the Chiefs who performed the best, probably Kelsey, then Mahomes, then Hardman. But overall it shows you how good the Chiefs are and we're we'll get to the Super Bowl preview next week, but this is gonna be a heck of a matchup with Mahomes and Brady. And someone on ESPN coined it the goat versus the the gone, which is the greatest of all time against the greatest of now so i'm super excited we'll wait to make analysis of the super bowl next week but um it's if you're a fan you have
3: to be happy with how this turned out i think unless you're a bills or packers fan
2: i mean storylines
3: yeah like I, I did want the bills to win just because they they've had a great story all season um but i i will not deny that mahomes versus brady super bowl edition is going to be amazing
2: and by the way, how about Cole Beasley playing the game on a broken tibia? And it wasn't that he broke his tibia during this game. He broke it last week and somehow was allowed to play.
3: And had the uh, best receiving was, you know, game out of the play. Bills, too. Yeah. that's the other thing. That's so a football close. player. He, he
2: is. And Cole Beasley, by the way, is a spitting image of Justin Turner. I don't know if Justin <laughs> Turner could play through broken tibia, but as far as lookalikes, uh, check it out.
0: That's fine yeah I mean Beasley's amazing they were talking about it on the broadcast Jim Nance and Tony Romo and uh, just how tough he is I mean to be 5'8 whatever he is and and be an NFL receiver for as long as he's done it you have to be tough and then you saw his injury I thought it actually looked like a cramp at first because they were grabbing the lower back of his leg but then you could see he was writhing around in pain I didn't think we'd see him and then like nothing happened God knows what they shot him up with but he, he went in the game and to play with a broken... T- I mean, that's crazy. That's That just is very elite, elite toughness right there. So, shout out to Cole Beasley. And I think the Bills will be back. So, Absolutely. So, with that, we're going to move on from football here. And I want to go to a story that broke this afternoon in Major League Baseball, which was the Hall of Fame results were released. And no one got elected this year and MLB Network today did four hours of Hall of Fame induction coverage which I did not watch thankfully but for all of those that did I'm really sorry you, you had to sit through that for no reason but the the results at least the top three remain similar as, as last year with Derek Jeter and Larry Walker got in last year so they'll have their ceremony this year Barry Bonds stayed at 70% and then Roger Clemens and Kurt Schilling both stayed around 60% I think you need, what, 75 to get in?
3: Yeah. So yeah.
0: so Bonds is 5% away. Clemens and Schilling are in the low 60s. Next year is their last year, all three of them. So I'm gonna and start A-Rod's with Barry, first year. And A-Rod's first year. It'll be interesting to see, but I, I want to start with Barry Bonds. Is there any way that you see him getting in next year, or are they going to let the Veterans Committee or whatever they're called do it? Adam, I'll start with you
2: uh i don't know if you're asking me whether i think he should be in it is absolutely yes um whether the writers feel the same way i don't know look it's very possible that uh these writers who you know want to get on their high horse uh and would like all these you know bonds and clemens to wait 10 years to get in obviously this would be the 10th and final year but i think Uh, next year will be very telling, not just because it's their last year of eligibility on the ballot. You'll also have guys like uh, David Ortiz and A-Rod on the ballot for the first time. And I think uh, if there's going to be a shift here, next year could be the right time where maybe you just induct all five of them in the same class and you get it over with. Because as I've kind of uh, maintained for a while, the issue with Cherry picking who gets in, you know, I think this guy did steroids or he didn't is there are there's definitely a Hall of Famer or a guy who is currently in the Hall of Fame that took steroids or PDs or, or something who's in there. So once he's in, he's in. And so I think if you want to play this game where you're you're not putting guys in based on suspicion or whatever the reasons you may have, I think it's a very dangerous slope to go down. So uh, do I think they'll get in? The numbers don't seem to indicate that, but it wouldn't surprise me to see a bunch of writers uh, change their mind in the 10th and final year of eligibility. And maybe there was this was just their way of saying, okay, we're going to make you wait as long as possible before we decide to vote you in.
0: Mike, do you agree that the writers are not going to get off their high horses or will enough come around to the fact that, okay, even though this guy was on steroids, he broke the single season home run record, he's with an asterisk, the all-time leader in home runs, Does that is that enough?
3: I, I don't think so, because historically they, they don't seem to let steroid users get in there, um, at, at least no one that is very strongly suspected. I mean, there was talk about Jeff Bagwell and, and Pudge Rodriguez, who got in a few years ago. But I, I think there was a lot more uncertainty around those guys um, than there is around guys like Bonds and Clemens. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with Arod, But I, I highly doubt that the writers will change their, their viewpoint within one year. I mean, yes, it's the last year you could say, well, they'll, they'll be up against the wall. They'll think it's now or never. But they, they, they've had plenty of years to think about this and, and to, to litigate, weigh the pros and cons. And every single time, um, enough of the writers ha- have uh, opted against allowing guys like Bonds and Clemens into the Hall of Fame. Um, and obviously it's not just them. It's guys like McGuire, or Seiko um, in the past. Who've, their time has already so expired. So, 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 um, so I don't see why next year is likely to be any different.
0: And Ian, do you agree? Yeah.
1: I agree that next year is unlikely to be any different. I think there's a few kind of points that are worth considering and, and maybe discussing. I think one is the character clause, which, I believe is unique to baseball. I don't think the other Hall of Fames have that, but that basically says that you're not only judging their on the field performance but also their integrity, sportsmanship, and character. So very vague, but you know you can read that in a way of I think these players cheated and I'm not gonna vote for them and enough you know enough writers have felt that way. Um, to me they should probably be in they're the best players of their generation, but I'm not you know, uh, shedding a tear for them, not getting in. I mean, they cheated. Um, so that's, you know, they made that decision, especially the guys like bonds and Clemens who likely didn't need to cheat and were, you know, probably would have been hall of famers without it. Um, so I think it's unlikely that things are going to change. I'm just looking at last year versus this year. Um, and actually the guy who was closest this year is Schilling, who maybe we'll have a separate discussion on cause his case is a bit different. Yeah. Um, Schilling was at 71.1%, Bonds 61.8, Clemens 61.6. And they only went up about, it looks like a point to a point and a half from last year to this year. So I don't see in their final year so many people all of a sudden changing their mind and saying, now I'm going to let them in. I think Adam had a, had a fun idea. I think they should change the rules in a sense for one year and say, you know, let's uh, add, remove that clause or kind of say, even if you suspected them of performance enhancing drugs, let them in. And we kind of call this like the steroid induction year and just.
0: Right. There's. Yeah. All I mean, think
1: about I mean, that all those
2: are like the five. Yeah. Those are like the five, like, the you know. The only ones
1: that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, at the very least, I feel like the Hall of Fame should have done something years ago where it's like anyone who suspected any public, you know, I know there's, it's hard because anyone can accuse anyone of anything. But anytime there's evidence, like, it can go on their plaque or there's they have to be put in context. Um, but the like other one more on point or something. A syringe, yeah. <laughs> one more point that I was just going to make is these people are in the Hall of Fame in a sense that they are a part of baseball history, like their memorabilia, their stats, their, um, you know, whatever, their game worn Jersey from whatever season like that's in the museum part. The, right. When we're talking about this, this is getting inducted as one of you know the all time great players and having that as the honor. So that's a distinction that I think we sometimes forget
0: Right, Ian, that's a that's a really good point because if for those of the listeners that have not been to the Hall of Fame, there's the museum which has all the cool artifacts from baseball history that you want to see, and there's a lot on the home run chase and involving things involving Clemens, involving Schilling, the bloody sock. Um, there's a lot on guys that are not Hall of Famers because of steroids. The Hall of Fame itself is the hall. An actual hallway it's beautiful marble with the, motto, with the plaques and there's a lot of plaques that line the wall so the plaques that have the busts on them are the actual hall of fame plaques in the hall of fame the rest of the building is the museum so the, players like mcguire bonds sosa they have a presence. But that's a distinction also that's an interesting thing. Maybe because there's a museum, people are saying the players in the actual hall itself have to be clean. And that may be where the baseball writers are coming from on this, that you have a museum that talks about all baseball history. But to really be considered the best of all time, which is what the Hall of Fame is, you have to have done it the right way. So it'll be interesting to see. I think Clemens, we all agree, would be a similar analysis to Bonds, that the steroid use taints his candidacy and it's unlikely he'd get in next year, right? Yep. Yeah. So if we Whatever were to... happens
2: to Bonds, yeah.
0: Right, and but Schilling, as Ian mentioned, is a completely different case. And Schilling's at 71%, and he had an outstanding career. If you look at his comps, um they're they're great and a lot of them will end up in the Hall of Fame. A lot of them are current pitchers or pitchers not eligible yet.
1: Aren't his numbers pretty similar to Mucina's too with like a better postseason?
0: Yeah. I'll I'll pull up the comps. I, I looked at them earlier, but Ian, I'll start with you. You were talking about the character clause and I personally think politics should be separate from baseball, but there are some things that Kirk Schilling has said that a lot of people are upset about over the last few years. So Do you think that that's enough to keep him out? Uh,
1: I guess you're saying that it should it be enough to keep him out. obviously is enough, um, by him not getting in. I think it's, it's a very touchy subject because it's not just politics and I haven't followed him that closely, but you know, obviously you can, you have freedom of speech on, uh, well, I shouldn't say that because (laughs) on Twitter as a private company, they can do what they want, but generally you can, you know, share your views. But I think some of his views have kind of crossed the line and gone pretty conspiratorial. And it's not like he's just sharing his political beliefs. So there's probably some level of nuance there that we can discuss if we want to. Um, But generally, no. I mean, I think it should be mostly about your on the field uh, kind of performance and I mean, to me, I don't really understand what happened to him or why he's kind of doing this because he would have gotten in and now he's basically going to boycott the Hall of Fame in his last year, which seems like a very childish move, in my opinion. Um, you know, obviously, I, I've never been a fan of Schilling as an on-the-field competitor, Meeting um, the Yankees many times as a member of the Red Sox and Diamondbacks. Well, I him? Res- well, yeah, I respect his, you know, his greatness, I guess, but... Um, you know, I, I would say too, he's also a borderline case. Like he's not a slam dunk, you know, all time great. He's kind of the guy who on his eighth, ninth, 10th year would probably get in. I think his questionable, you know, public persona right now is pro you know, is what's keeping him out. Um, but yeah, it comes down to this morality clause and, and everyone can interpret that for how they choose. And enough writers are you know are choosing to leave them off their ballot
0: and i'm gonna redo the comps because this is what i promised so for hall of fame standards so i I looked on baseball reference and overall he's the 28th all-time starting pitcher i think in terms of career war he has a 79 and a half career war the average hall of fame pitcher has a 73.3 career war there are 65 pitchers in the hall of it says out of 65 so i thought there were more but uh 48.67 year peak war it's 50 for the average hall of famer and then 64 jaws which is You only had 216
1: wins though which i know wins are an antiquated stat it, but that's... right i mean
0: it's these are more analytically inclined yeah. stats like jaws is a advanced metric but he has 64 and the average is 61.6. But just to give you a sense of some of the current pitchers that he's compared to, Zach Grinke, Justin Verlander, uh, and then John Smoltz are the, are the three most contemporary. Mark Burley and John Smoltz are the four most contemporary on this list. John Smoltz is a Hall of Famer. Other examples are Bob Welch, Kevin Brown, Oral Hershiser. So all these guys are very good pitchers, some of which are in the Hall of Fame, some are not. But Adam, do you think that he should be in? I mean, his statistics to me say Hall of Famer. I
2: do. Um, I know his regular season numbers aren't quite there, but I think the postseason elevates him to a level. I mean, he, he was he's an iconic postseason pitcher. Um, as far as the whole politics stuff, you know, look, you're, you're voting a guy based on, is he one of the greatest baseball players of all time? And to me, Kurt Schilling is, and I think you have to put aside all the off the field antics. Uh, look, not everybody in the Hall of Fame is a saint, but if, when you when you start to make it in any way political or anything that happened after his baseball playing days is not the right way to go about it. Um, to me, yeah, you know, he's not a clear cut if you're looking just at the regular season uh, numbers, but uh, I, I've always considered
1: him to be a Hall of Famer. Would you say, Adam, just to, to put it, if if a player um, committed a crime or was arrested or you know domestic violence, like things of that nature, would that affect your thought on voting for a guy, or is there really nothing that would, as long as they're on the field, career numbers, you know, were good enough?
2: Um. Well, I guess here's a question I would use to counter that: is is O.J. Simpson in the Hall of Fame? Well, how about think, like I a guy like? Is, right? How
0: about staying in baseball? A guy like Ty Cobb, he wasn't the best human being. Yeah.
2: Well, I'm saying O.J. Simpson a lot is of like the most later.
0: Drastic, I was thinking of him too.
2: I I believe O.J. Simpson is, yeah, he was inducted in 1985, but I don't like. Was he? Did he have his like Hall of Fame membership revoked like, or something? I don't know it. how that worked. Can but Mike, so um, to just... answer your question, yeah, to, to answer your question, um, yeah, look, the guy, you know. The guy was either a Hall of Famer or not. I think part of what I love about baseball is just all the the storylines. Like, there's just so much rich history in the sport, and that's what bothers me about a guy like Barry Bonds not being in the Hall of Fame. Is this guy was the most incredible talent you've ever seen? I mean, we will never see a guy of Barry Bonds' stature ever again. I don't think. Um, I mean, to see to see a guy get walked with the bases loaded is the ultimate sign of respect in baseball. I mean, it it just doesn't happen. Um, And I think I I guess going back to the whole steroid talk, I I think what bothers me about bonds is yes. You know, he was likely taking steroids and, and, uh, um, You know, that inflated his statistics. But let's not pretend like he was the only guy. I mean, this was the steroid era. And as many hitters that were taking steroids, he was facing a lot of pitchers who run PEDs as well. So I think the fact is, it was the steroid era. There's no way to measure for sure who was taking it, who wasn't. So I think you have to embrace the fact that this was a part of baseball history. And this is what happened. But But what really bothers me the most about this whole... Hall of Fame process, all this nonsense is the fact that Bud Selig was inducted into the Hall of Fame. This is the guy who presided over the steroid era. He let it happen. He knew this stuff was going on because the sport needed an injection, no pun intended, of, <laughs> of energy to bring fans back. Well, he in wasn't the
1: inducted by the writers though, right?
2: No, but he's still there. and It just seems so hypocritical that the guy who let this happen is in the hall of fame but the players who put baseball back on the map are have this grudge that's being held against them so look maybe maybe um you know the writers don't don't get these guys in and ultimately it's the committee who who puts them in but to me bud selig was the commissioner who presided over the steroid era there's no way you can convince me that he deserves to be in the hall of fame and the players who who you know were the, the superstars during that era are not allowed in. It just, it it's just seems crazy to
0: me. And to answer your question about OJ Simpson, he is still in the NFL hall of fame and the NFL hall of fame says that their bylaws stipulate that only a player's on field achievements in football are considered the criteria for enshrinement. I think that's correct. Yeah. So, and I, and so, I
2: don't have, a, and I don't have a problem with that either. I mean, the, the idea of erasing history, it, it doesn't, it doesn't it's feel not right. erasing
1: history. Like, we talked about the museum versus the honor.
2: Okay, but, but is the honor a
1: moral O.J. Simpson or political was an incredible
2: talent. Honor. He was a Hall of Fame football
1: player. I don't so, think that's a clause in football. I think that's the difference with the baseball.
0: I want I I wanna to go, go to wrong, Mike because but... Mike hasn't had a chance to weigh in. Mike, do you agree with Ian on this, that the morality clause would preclude Schilling from getting in here, or do the statistics
3: outweigh any of that? So, so this is interesting, because here's he where I stand. First off, anybody who knows me on this show knows that I think that Curt Schilling's politics and viewpoints on race are absolutely disgusting. But does he have Hall of Fame quality numbers? Yeah, he does. Um, you're right, his, his wins number isn't super impressive. Now, part of that's because uh, guys who pitched before him are going to have more wins because they made more starts, but... His strikeout stats are right up there. I think he's, he's 15th of all time in, in strikeouts. Um, And he still was the uh, the leader in wins, I want to say, at least twice um, in his career. But, uh, at, you know, having said that, Ian makes an interesting point about how, how the guy, he looks like a child having said that he should simply, that, that the writer should just take him off of the ballot in his next year, which would be his final year of eligibility. It seems like that's who he is. His public persona has been pretty childish, especially um, in recent years since his retirement. And I know we were texting about this before the uh, the podcast, but from, from the writer's standpoint, at the end of the day, they're humans. They get to vote. And whatever the bylaws say about voting, at the end of the day, they're the ones who are making that call. So if they think that his character... Precludes him from Hall of Fame inclusion, then they can vote that way with no consequence, and nobody can prove that that was why they voted that way. Um, So, I, I guess my my conclusion is, you know, if if I was a writer, would I vote him in? Yeah, I probably would. But I I also can't penalize the current writers for not doing so, because, you know, you really can't prove that this is why they're against him. Now, if if we're going to go to the greater Hall of Fame discussion as far as steroid use. Yeah, I'm, I'm among those who say that steroid users should absolutely in no way uh, be inducted into the Hall of Fame because they are cheaters. And if they were confident in their own abilities, then they should have not used the roids. Especially guys like Bonds and Clemens, who many would argue didn't even need the steroids to be great. Well, okay, so then why did they use them? Because the, the, their use goes against that argument. And um. I don't think they should be inducted, nor anybody else who followed in their footsteps or who preceded them. Because I'll tell you who didn't use roids. Hank, the Babe, and Roger Maris. They got in off of pure talent. That's how they achieved their numbers. Um, Now, as far as Bud Sealy goes, yeah, I absolutely agree. He in no way should be in the Hall of Fame. He is probably the worst commissioner, not only in baseball history, but in sports history. Um, Having simply allowed this cheating to go on for as long as it did. Done nothing about it even after it was uncovered. And not to mention, I still hold a grudge against him for introducing the stupid two wild cards rule back in 2013. I think that was another stupid decision. So, yeah, he should not be in there. there there's no doubt in my mind.
2: I, I do want to draw a parallel to the whole shilling, you know, wanting to be taken off the ballot. First of all, I, I do understand where he's coming from. Look, he's frustrated. I don't think he wants to be a, a pity vote. I think he'd almost rather have the committee him in than the writers i don't think he respects the writers but i think a perfect comparison something very similar happened with terrell owens if you remember uh to was snubbed off the ballot many years to is, is clearly a hall of fame talent but a lot of writers had questions with his character and they thought they wanted to make him wait a little bit and so to finally got the call he was inducted to hall of fame but um he decided not to show- ceremony and he actually gave his acceptance speech in the local high school gymnasium so i think look you're a professional athlete a lot of these guys have big big egos but i think to see the the fate of your uh career and your legacy put in the hands of a bunch of writers who may have a personal grudge against you or are not truly Uh, evaluating your career based on your talent, they're they're weighing other factors, I could see why that rubs guys
0: the wrong way. Yeah, and to me, it comes down to, are his numbers Hall of Fame worthy? Yes, let him in. I think that morality or political views, as repugnant as they may be to a lot of Americans or the people that watch baseball, you have to separate the numbers and the on-field performance from the politics and the antics off the field i i think that the morality clause comes in when it's like something that's clear-cut like murder or rape or you know terrible i mean obviously certain views are also terrible but i think that there's a fine line between being the morality but it's up police for debate, and, right? And let it, it is, it is up, it is up for some it people. Murder, for debate,
1: for some people but... It's what he's done. Like in some ways, that's kind of the greatness of like the hall of fame that we can have these debates and everyone right. has a
0: different viewpoint. So Adam, I'll let you wrap this, this part of the discussion up.
2: Yeah. I, I just wanted to make one other point. One thing I've ne- to me, I, I think to answer whether a guy Deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. It should be a simple matter of when you ask, okay, does so and so belong in the Hall of Fame? To me, it should be a quick yes or no. Uh, that, to, that that to me is a Hall of Famer. If you can identify right away that he, you know, you think he is, that to me is a compelling enough case. Uh, with the exception of a few maybe borderline guys, but what I've never understood is how is it that certain guys get inducted? On their final year of the ballot, so there are guys who have who have waited 15 years on the ballot to get in. A, a couple examples: um, uh, Jim Rice was one. Larry Walker, most recently, Tim Raines. What is it that changes in 15 years where writers will say, "Okay, you know what? He wasn't a Hall of Famer in my mind five years ago. He wasn't a Hall of Famer in my mind 10 years ago. But you know what? Now I think is the right time to 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 induct him. I I don't understand what changes." In the minds of the writers, I get that every year there's maybe a handful of new writers and maybe like those votes add up a little bit, but I've never really understood why certain guys need to wait 15 years to get in. Like he's either a Hall of Famer or he's not. So maybe one of you guys has an answer to that, but (laughs) I've always wondered that.
3: Uh, they have so yeah, many years right. to debate it in their head and change their minds that that's always the way I've seen it.
0: It's ten, they have 10 years, and I think Adam... I, I think it used, used to be
3: 15. Did they change it? Okay. Right now it's 10. That.
0: But even with a decade, you should be able to figure it out in your mind whether someone's a Hall of Famer. I know that there's peer pressure, but to me, the 10-year period is enough. And Adam, I agree that it should be a yes or no question. That Was this player's performance on the field... Hall of Fame worthy. Did he do it cleanly or were his numbers so good that even with any performance enhancements, they made an exceptional Hall of Fame worthy contribution to baseball. So I say next year, let Pete Rose, Shoeless, Joe, Barry Bonds, whoever you want, make that year 2022 the class where the so-called tainted people get in. Um, But I do think they deserve at least – a, a plaque or a wing you can even have it separate maybe from the hall itself but just a wing acknowledging that they're belonging in a different like maybe area. near the bathroom or something i don't know whatever you want to do but they should be recognized other than in the museum so with that I, i'm gonna move on to a person okay. that i, I we... had an
1: answer to adam's question. go
0: ahead yeah you oh, can yes no, I was going to
1: say that the more cynical view is these writers are punishing the players and they're making them kind of twist in the wind and, and wait until that writers... last year No, say, but,
2: I, but I'm, I'm not talking the about the, the controversial guys. I'm yes. talking about like a Jim Rice and a Larry Walker and um, you know,
1: guy, guys like that. I think that. standards like why... change. I think depending on who's on the ballot, how big the ballot is, I think unfortunately because everyone's human – things change like if there's crowded years or empty years I think that has an effect on a certain amount of voters
0: I think the writers are it's not their play like the writers should look at it as their responsibility and their job to say objectively who is in the Hall of Fame you have ballots I know LaTroy Hawkins seemingly was an amazing person but he got two votes and no offense to LaTroy Hawkins he's not a Hall of Famer so it you know you have these writers making stands well, we now, can also which... have
1: another discussion i know we're we're going long here on i think 16 ballots were returned blank
0: yeah and that's another and i think that we can discuss that another time because i want to i want to keep the show relatively short for the listeners who like to to take an hour to listen to this i don't want to go who value their time I tell them to the listen on fast time. forward on right. one, and a half speed. one and a half speed um <laughs> But I I do think that that's a discussion that we can continue to have. So I want to move on to a guy that, as I was saying before, the writers and us would agree was a Hall of Famer. Hank Aaron passed away last week. I think he's the home run king. He did it without steroids. To me, he's the best home run hitter in baseball history, period. Um, And I I read a stat that 15 years or so he had – 40 home runs, around 40 home runs, and the level of consistency that he displayed throughout his career was unparalleled. So, Ian, I'll start with you. Thoughts on Hank Aaron? Is he the all-time home run king?
1: Yeah, I mean, to me he is, I think based on our discussion of, of bonds and steroids uh, in our previous segment. I think, you know, we were talking about fun Brady stats. I think there's a lot of similar stats for Hank Aaron, you know, one being that he had 3,000 hits plus. If you if he didn't hit a single home run, he still had 3,000 hits, which is just yeah. I was going to say that. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, I think we, you know, there—he's one of the all-time greats, and he's one of those guys who, you know, was not a, a showman. He kind of was quiet, composed, and obviously dealt with a lot of racism as he kind of approached the all-time home run record um, down in Atlanta. Um, so, yeah, he's just the guy that kind of—the more you read about him, the more stats you you kind of reacquaint yourself with. He he just really stands out and pops as, you know. The greatest in in a generation and one of the, the greatest players of all time
0: yeah Mike what are your thoughts on where he stands amongst the the greatest baseball
3: players ever first off yes he is the home run king and until somebody uh, breaks his record cleanly which I don't think anybody ever will um, he will always be the home run king he could well be the good of baseball as far as batters are concerned um, he leads, I want to say, in RBIs, extra base hits, total bases, I um, think a top five in both hits and runs overall. And the thing that's so remarkable about Hank is who he was as a person. Because with the amount of racism that he faced, you know, he had every reason to be angry, disgruntled, whatever you want to say. And I don't think anybody would have blamed him if he was because of the the stuff that he had faced simply for being a strong, successful black baseball player in, in an age where racism was—I'll say even worse than now—but he wasn't. He was just—he was simply a very kind-hearted, forgiving guy. He put his head down, played ball, but I, I was always an elder statesman of baseball, um, both during and after his career. And I think he played into his forties, so he was one of the oldest at the time. But you know, well after that, um, he—he just—he—he he was a perfect lesson in, in class and in grace. Um, I, I was upset he was a huge loss I remember I even um, did a book report on him for, for Black History Month back in, it might have been middle school um, because even then I, I could understand the impact that he had both on and off the field um, so to me he, he is the GOAT a, as a batter um, huge huge loss, out, out of all the, the, the losses we've had over the past year he's, he's got to be one of the top five and that's really saying something
0: yeah, Adam, I'll, I'll let you jump in here. You guys have
2: uh echoed a lot of the same points I was going to make. Uh Ian with that great stat about uh 3000 hits uh, minus all of his home runs, Mike about uh the fact that he was able to accomplish all this uh despite all the, you know, uh racism that that he was experiencing. Um to me, well, yeah, 755, that's that's an incredible number when you think that home runs were a lot harder to come by in that era. So, uh, yes, lo- longevity was part of it, but he was extremely consistent. Um, and you guys spoke about his character as well. I, I believe I used a, a quote of his in my high school yearbook, something about uh, keep swinging, like, through the tough times. So um, I'll have to dig that up somewhere. But, um, yeah, rest in peace to a legend. And you hope that Hank Aaron is one of the Players that um, you know will continue to live on for generation to generation that people will talk about him and tell your children and, and their children uh, because a guy like him you know his legacy deserves to li- live on forever and uh, hopefully people will rem- remember him for the person that he was and the great ball player that he was and um, you know you, you can debate whether he's the, the home run ch- champion but I mean he was an incredible player
0: yeah and to to give you a sense I I know you guys talked about his numbers being amazing i mean he's he's fifth all time in offensive war but just to give you perspective he was in the 40 30 club he had 40 home runs and 30 stolen bases in a season every year of his career from 1955 to 1973 the 18 seasons there he was top 10 in home runs every year from 1955 to 1973 he finished first in home runs four times in that span he also was top nine in rbi from 1955 to 1971 there was not a single year that he except for 1965 here that he did not finish in the top 10 in rbi so it just is incredible these numbers he was Top 10 in stolen bases For 8 seasons in his career He finished 2nd in 1963 With 31 stolen bases In 1963 he finished 1st in RBI with 130 RBI And in 1963 He had 44 home runs Which was 1st in the league To me that's if not the greatest season of all time It has to be considered as a top 3 Probably the greatest season ever Hank Aaron's 1963 season So with that He was an amazing person uh, and rest in peace Uh, it's I I wish I had gotten it to see him play live but just seeing the highlights and hearing the interviews he clearly was a great man so rest in peace Hank Aaron and I want to I know we're running a little long but today also marks the one-year anniversary of Kobe Bryant's death and I wanted to touch on that for a minute did did you guys have anything that you wanted to share on his legacy you know, has anything crystallized over the last year? Has it sunk in or what, did, what do you what are your thoughts? Ian, I'll start with you. We may have lost Ian. He's on mute. <laughs> so Adam, I'll start with you. He's sorry. On mute. Right. I'm sorry about that. I'm back. Can I can I jump in? Yeah, you can um, jump in.
1: Yeah, no, I was just gonna say there's been so much horrible news over the last year. Um you know, obviously, with the virus and and so many notable deaths, including the one we just mentioned, but I feel like the Kobe death was just so shocking. I mean, it was just so out of the blue. He was so young. Um, I'll remember where I was, um, you know, when I heard the news, and I'm sure you guys as well. And, um, no, I'm I mean, sitting here in this chair. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was actually it was. Uh, I just finished my first time skiing, so it was a very memorable day. And and I read the news that day. Um, so yeah, that stood out even more for me, but, um, no, I, I mean, it's just so sad. And I was reading, um, I guess a letter from one of Gianna's, uh, former teammates. Um, and, and, uh, she wrote it to Vanessa Bryant, uh, just about the, you know, the character of Gianna and, and Kobe and how kind of amazing they were as people. So, um, kind of the more you read on it, just the sadder and sadder it is. And, um yeah, I think he's the one. He's really transcended sports um and maybe even more so than you would realize of just how iconic he he was um you know, much more than just to the LA area or to the NBA, but to really
0: like pretty much the whole world. Yeah, Adam, what are your thoughts?
2: Very tragic obviously. Um you know, Kobe's death is you could probably count on one hand uh, the number of other athletes where the same thing could happen and it would have the same impact I mean, just as far as his legendary status um, not just here in in the US but but across the world um, just very shocking and and very sad and very tragic given where he was in his life and how much he had matured and I actually just finished reading um, Jeff Perlman's book Three Ring Circus which talks about the Lakers dynasty years um, the years of Kobe and Shaq and the book you know, talks about his younger years and how immature he was. And it it really doesn't paint him in a very flattering light. Uh, I I do recommend the book. There's a lot of great stories in there. But I think what stands out is, you know, to read about what he was like, um, you know, as a younger player and to see how much he matured in the back end of his career and then, more importantly, in his post-playing career where he became just a, um, you know, just very mature and and well-spoken. And, um, you know, it's just a, it's just a fascinating transformation to see. And I think the one thing that we can all take away from Kobe was his tireless work ethic. And look, he may not have been the best teammate. Um, in fact, I know he wasn't the best teammate, but he, he, there was not a single person who outworked him. And, uh, I think that's part of the reason why he had so much success on the court is because he, he wanted it more than anybody else did. And, um, you know, he had an amazing career on the court. Uh, he, he won an Oscar um, after, you know, finishing in the NBA. So I think he had a very promising career to come. So just very tragic.
0: Yeah, Mike, do you want to add anything?
3: Absolutely. First off, uh, he is a proud Philly area native and Eagles fan. He was uh, at the game in which they won the Super Bowl, um, and a- a- Adam had actually taken a, a lot of what I was going to talk about. He, he mentioned the uh, the personal growth throughout his career and having started being a a more immature player and having really grown up throughout his career. Um, I I think the the breaking point there might've been when Phil Jackson had decided to retire from his coaching job. And then they basically had to beg him to come back a year later. And I think a lot of what happened there was Kobe um, doing some growing up and, and, you know, building on that relationship with Phil Jackson and being a different type of teammate. Um, But something else that, that I was reading what well, was from Paul Gasol who, who was very close with him. I, I had not even known that they were um, basically best friends, but that that friendship started more in the latter part of Kobe's career when he had started to mature. And um, I love what Paul had said about his uh, his work ethic as a teammate. How he he will you know bust anyone's bubbles if they're not putting in a hundred percent of their effort he, he will openly, he, he will criticize them if he sees them falling short, but that he made, he made it known after the game or after practice, wherever they were, that it was all about love and respect. He just wanted to make everybody better. And, um, Paul even considered, um, Kobe an uncle to late uncle to his, his new daughter. And, uh, he, he was essentially an uncle to Gianna, um, and to, uh, her surviving siblings. Um, He even named his his daughter. Her middle name is named after Gianna, Um, which I think if if, if anything is worse than Kobe's untimely death, it was his daughter Gianna, who was poised at age 13, was already poised to be a a huge WNBA star. Um, But yeah, that's my take on Kobe. Um, Just a big loss on on both sides of the court, really.
0: Yeah, I still can't believe it. I can't believe that Kobe's not going to be at an All-Star game or an NBA Finals or sitting on the sideline of a, a Laker regular season game with Gigi, it's it's hard to believe still. And I know it's been a year, but it, it really, I think that it, it's going to be one of those things where his presence is always going to be around the game and carried on. I, I was watching SportsCenter a little bit and a lot of star players were paying tribute to him in a montage. And you see the highlights of him playing against michael jordan and then the next clip playing against lebron james and that encapsulates what kobe was to the nba he was the bridge between jordan and in the 90s and lebron and the 2010s really That, that kobe was the ambassador that shepherded the game from basically what was the glorious era of the nba with magic and larry bird and then jordan and the dream team and then to the current stars of today with LeBron and Durant and Harden they're they're all paying tribute to him and he was an inspiration to all these young guys so he he took inspiration from Michael Jordan at the beginning of his career but then turned it into his own and Adam mentioned maturing and he really became a great ambassador for basketball around the world so it's still hard to believe but I I wanted to talk a little bit about that since today is the one year anniversary of the tragic plane crash with kobe and Gigi and the rest of the passengers and um just very very sad so with that i'm going to move to final thoughts and um adam i'll start with you today i know it's not easy to follow talking about two deaths but um you know feel free to talk about whatever you'd like
2: sure so my final thought I'll go to baseball free agency a lot of the major dominoes have started to fall JT Rimluto resigned with the Phillies today but there's really one big fish left and that is uh, Trevor Bauer and I've kind of been torn on him um but my gut is telling me the rumors are coming out that the Mets may be the front runners to sign him and I think if they can get him on a short-term deal at a high AAV I think it's a risk they got to take um He's the reigning young winner. Um, his numbers the last three seasons have been really, really solid. Um, you know, I've I've worried about oh, are the Mets going to go over the luxury the the, uh, the salary cap, and are they going to be able to, able to re-sign so and so next season? But I think, as a fan who has never experienced a championship, I need to better embrace the now and. Look, if they sign him, it means they're clearly trying to win a championship now. And I think you can't really complain about that. So I hope they sign him. I hope they get him on favorable terms. And hopefully he can tone down the act a little bit on social media. Um, You know, just make sure he's 100% focused on, um, you know, delivering a World Series title to the
0: Mets. Ian, I'll go to you next.
1: Unsurprisingly, I'll stay in the world of New York baseball and give a couple of thoughts on the Yankees over the past week. They continue to, to stay active. Um, a couple of trades, one more surprising than the other. I'll start with the surprising one, which was the salary dump of Adam Ottavino, who was great for them a couple of years ago and, and really fell out of favor, uh, in 2020, so much that he was basically passed up. He was like the last guy on the bullpen roster and, I think he was making around nine million a year. Or so the Yankees traded with the Red Sox, which happens very infrequently, um, and the Yankees only are paying I think a million or so out of the remainder of his salary. I, I guess, as Adam alluded to, there's that same kind of salary uh, luxury tax hit. I guess at the two ten million amount that the Mets and you know the Yankees and most teams are still trying to stay under, which. You know, uh, I I'm never a fan of that. When you're a team that's taking in more money than other teams, and you know, I know a lot of teams can say they have million uh, billionaire owners, but uh, it would uh, be nice to to not be. I think this would be the lowest Yankee payroll in a number of years, but it seems like they're going that way. They made the salary dump move, probably not going to be enough to re-sign Tanaka, which is unfortunate in my opinion. But they're probably going to try to get Gardner back on uh, a very cheap. One year deal. Um, So that was the one surprising trade. And then the other trade was a little more interesting. Um, That's uh, Jameson Tyone. Tyone, I think is how you pronounce his name. Does not uh, sound like it looks, but I was researching. It's the word tie and the word own. (laughs) Um, But he's another kind of reclamation project, as we saw Kluber. Uh, he has been a top starter, but he's also had two Tommy John surgeries and, uh, unfortunately, you know, testicular cancer. So he's had a, a, a tough road, but uh, I know him and Garrett Cole are friends since their days in Pittsburgh. So uh, lots of upside, but also another risky move, although it seems like they gave up kind of middling prospects. So I will take that kind of move any day of the week and um, just keeping my fingers crossed that him and Kluber uh, are able to stay healthy this year.
0: So we got two baseball thoughts, two New York baseball thoughts specifically. Mike Mandel, are you going to add a baseball thought?
1: Probably not a New York baseball
3: thought. Not a New York baseball thought. So there's some baseball in my final thought because it's more general. and I want to be upbeat given the last two topics, but um, out out of the coronavirus pandemic, clearly there were a lot of adjustments that had to be made to sports in general. And I, I think one of the positives is that some of these adjustments will end up being seen as something that can be Practice long term, and, and we, th- I know we had talked in the past about the um, the NL adding the DH, to potentially expand the playoffs. Um, and they're currently at an impasse there, but clearly they're being discussed. Uh, but one thing that I was just thinking about this weekend with with the NBA, and, and I was talking about it with my father, is, I'm a big fan of, for in conference teams to, to be playing those back to back games. Um, so something like the baseball series, uh, where they play three to four in a row. I, I like it. I think it, it gives you the same opportunity as baseball does. For for after the first game, the teams go back. They they make adjustments and come out for for the second game, and you really get to see um, who the stronger of the two matchups is um, so and it also you know, simplifies travel, uh, for the NBA teams in the future. So I hope that that's something that the NBA seriously considers going forward because i like it a lot i was for the sixers in in detroit this past weekend i thought it was great and um, the end of the series clearly showed that they have some work to do um even being one of the the better teams in the league this year um i'm I'm crossing my fingers that they decide to implement that going forward
0: and that's yeah it's i agree i think that it's fun to watch the back to backs. It, it really makes it a rivalry no matter who's playing because that second game gets a little heated. Exactly. So, for, for my final thought, I per custom have two, one of which I, I just was going to do because of something that happened tonight, which unfortunately it's another death in the sports world that Sekou Smith, who was a prominent NBA beat writer, died of COVID, and all of these NBA luminaries like Woj and Shams Charania and just every writer that you can think of has a good word to say about Sekou Smith and he covered the finals, he covered all the bubble last year he covered All-Star, just any big NBA event and I, I remember reading his articles, sometimes they would be posted on a website or in a newspaper I was reading so I'll miss reading his um, his insight into the NBA and from all accounts he was an amazing person the second final thought i have is more upbeat mark burley my favorite white Sox pitcher of all time got 11 percent of the hall of fame vote i was very glad to see because he was hanging around five percent if you look at his numbers i think there's a case to be made that he should be in the hall of fame so hopefully it's a case of as he stays on the ballot longer more people will recognize what he did he had a perfect game no hitter Won and saved a game in the same World Series. Was a model of consistency throughout his career. Durability. If you want to go old school stats, wins. He had a lot of wins. ERA was good. Just a really good competitor. Great pitcher. So He's
2: going to have to wait 15 years like Jim Rice. Right.
0: Yeah, right. So shout out to Mark Burley. So with that, as promised, here's the outro. Thank you for listening. I'm Mike Weil. For Mike Mandel, Ian Gus, Adam Rosen. This is the Sports Cafe, and we'll see you next episode.